All right. <clears throat> well, I'm really looking forward to the sermon series. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I've always found David's story and just something about the way that the narrative flows when you read about David and, and his thoughts and his inner life. There's something kind of different about that than much of the rest of the Old Testament. It just feels like there's something a little bit more authentic, maybe a little bit more honest, something a little more relatable for an expressive individualist like ourselves. But I want to ask the question this morning of like, why, why, why would we do a sermon series on David in the first place? Why look at his life? As somebody who's lived thousands of years ago, and if you are familiar with the life of David at all, you you might have a bunch of reasons yourself also for the very reason uh, I'm, I am excited about it. There are a ton of reasons. If you don't know who David is, he is Israel's most celebrated king in all of history. He um, is this dramatic figure and a, and a tragic hero who in the same, uh, on one hand, he slays Goliath, and everybody knows about David slaying Goliath. Like It's so well known in our culture that that is a, a metaphor that we use on a regular basis. Like it's, it, it has shaped our society and our culture in ways we don't even realize. But on the other hand, he's also guilty of abusing his power, of taking advantage of other people, of betraying his friends. He is beloved by his brothers in arms and has some, there's some of the most incredible stories of friendship in the Bible are, are, are tied up in the story of David. And also some of the most tragic family crises and examples of brokenness in all of Scripture. As I said, he's, he's, he seems really relatable to us in a lot of ways. And he was, he was actually very relatable to me when I was in college. Before I became a Christian, I, had a, uh, I ended a, a, a romantic relationship and I was crushed and, didn't, and had this identity crisis and didn't know like, like which end is up and who am I, in part because I knew it was the right decision and I still hurt her. And I still broke her heart. And I thought at that point, up to that point, that if I just had good intentions, then I could go through life and never actually make a mistake like that. And it was a friend of mine from high school who... Uh, at a distance, had become a Christian, and started directing me to reading First and Second Samuel and, and, and pointing out that David, after being such a catastrophic failure, is still called by God a man after his own heart. In many ways, it's the story of David that made me open to God's love and how I became a Christian in the first place. Historically speaking, there are even more parallels than just that one around like what faithfulness looks like in a world that I've talked a lot about. Like actually, a, la a year ago, this last fall, we preached through the Book of Esther, and we talked about how we can really identify with the Book of Esther because we, we feel like we're in a society or a culture that's in between epochs. We are like what what came before is no longer post-pandemic, but what's coming down the pike and where we're going, it's really unclear. And this describes so well the exact context of, that Israel was in the midst of when David enters into the story. I say that because you'll notice in the, the, uh, the passage that Michael read that David isn't even mentioned in that passage yet. And the king that they're asking for 
it ends up not being David. It's actually a guy named Saul. In fact, the book that we're reading this passage from, that we read this passage from, isn't named David, it's named Samuel. <laughs> right? So why in the world does, does this book that has so much to do with the life of David, how does it start with Samuel? It's, in a lot of ways, it's because it's, in some ways it's also not about David. And that's actually the first thing that we need to know as we jump into the sermon series, is that the, the book of 1 Samuel spends 15 chapters explaining what was happening and what was going on in Israel with God's people before David's name comes up the first time. In the first seven, we see, leading up to the passage that Michael prayed this morning, it paints this crazy picture of Israel coming apart at the seams. Uh, a priest, the head priest, uh, the high priest, excuse me, his name is Eli, and his sons have basically used the priesthood as a, an extortion racket. And he and his family, his sons, and, and the priesthood have become so corrupt that when Samuel comes along and becomes the new high priest, they, Israel rejoices and is encouraged, but his sons turn out to be no better, and Israel starts freaking out because they thought Samuel was turning over a new leaf and only to come and find and realize maybe he's the exception rather than the rule. Across the board, Israel is not living as if they live in the promised land that God had rescued them into out of slavery in Egypt, and they are just, they are living as if they were, they were still slaves. The, the Philistines, uh, the, an enemy nation uh, neighbor, had attacked them and destroyed the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where, where God held court, so to speak, where God's presence in the, in the Ark of the Covenant was situated, and at Shiloh, that tabernacle was destroyed. At the Battle of Aphek, the same Philistine army captures the Ark of the Covenant, which is where the, the, the Ten Commandments are, being, are held inside the Ark of the Covenant. They're, it's captured and taken as a spoil of war. This has never happened before or since in all of Israel's history. It's a low point. And it seems like this promised land of milk and honey has put Israel in a death spiral. One commentator put it that the wick is smoldering, but it's flickering very feebly at this point. That's all that's going on. So when 1 Samuel opens in chapter 1, what does, it, what does he start with? What does Samuel start with in, in telling the story and leading up to David? He tells a story of a woman named Hannah. Hannah, who is a beloved one of, one of multiple wives to the priest, that, that alone tells you how far Israel has fallen, that they're marrying like the nations around them, okay? And she is her husband's beloved, and yet she can't have kids. She's barren. And even more so than in a culture like ours, this is devastating because that, to, to not having kids means you have no future, you have no legacy. And so in so many ways, she is a representative of what it's like to be Israel right now. Beloved by God and yet barren and not understanding where the hope is because it, there's no future, no legacy. Thing, everything is going wrong. In fact, she is a typology for everything that happens leading up to chapter 8 because it's her godly prayer for a child going to God in her need 
that mirrors Israel's plea for a righteous heir to replace and follow Eli, and it is Samuel who God answers with, and Samuel is her son. So the book is named after Samuel because Samuel is a typology of God's faithfulness that is then traced in through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, and the historical books to follow. It's incredible. And it all starts with Hannah in the same way that the Gospels start with Mary. This is just the first of many skin-tinglingly beautiful typologies that we are going to explore in the midst of all this. Unfortunately, we have to start with the bad news, though, before we rush to that, because, yes, Hannah's godly prayer for a child mirrors Israel's righteous plea for an heir, but it also foreshadows and contrasts Israel's very different plea for a king. So in chapter 8, this is what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on this statement that, that Michael read, where Israel says, give us a king to judge us like the nations. First, let's, actually, yeah, let me go ahead and reread verses 7 through 8 to refresh our memories here, okay? Because this is what's going on. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God is telling Samuel why they're asking for a king. There's a, there's a few different kind of dimensions or facets of this. When, if, if we're trying to ask the, that question, it's helpful to know that this is following and even overlapping a little bit with, with the book of Judges. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, it's this... It's a, it's a wild ride, man. If you're like, I don't really understand, like, Scripture's kind of boring, I'm just not that interested, go up and judges and then tell me if you think Scripture's still boring. It is a wild ride. God sends these very strange, often uh, flawed, tragically flawed judges to rescue Israel and deliver God's people from whatever they are in the midst of, but it follows this recurring cycle. And it's a cycle of apostasy, Oppression, repentance, and deliverance. And then Israel starts taking God for granted again. And it's, it's apostasy, oppression, repentance, deliverance over and over and over again. And so this is mirroring that in a lot of ways. And so when the judges are not there to deliver Israel, the everyday kind of judging and you know, sitting at the, the, town, the city gates and delivering um, decrees and and reconciling conflict between God's people, that fell on the priests. That was their role in addition to representing God, uh, God's people to God. It was also representing God's law to God's people. And so in the midst of this, they're asking, we want a king because Samuel, who is supposed to be this bright light and this hope, his son seems to be following the same path as Eli's, and we just can't, we just can't break out of this cycle of apostasy and oppression and repentance and, and deliverance. And so God's people are frustrated and they're exhausted, right? Also, it's important to know that God was not caught flat-footed, flat-footed by this plea. God predicted it because in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, he has Moses give them instructions for when they start feeling the need for a king. This is fascinating. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses tells Israel, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, because they're still in the wilderness at the time, 
and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. <laughs> kind of saw this coming. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. Okay, so if things aren't going well and the current system isn't working and God knew that they were going to ask about it anyway, what is the problem? What's the big deal? Right? Because all the reasons here that, that I've been kind of trying to outline the context for, that it's pretty relatable reasons, right? I'm going to go in a direction that may, that, that's going to sound a little bit like I'm not answering that question, but I promise you I am. Um, a tech and culture writer by the name of Michael Sacassis, he, uh, he starts an article titled Outsourcing Virtue, talking about how technology shapes us. He starts it with a quote from an unfinished play by T.S. Eliot that says this, constantly trying to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. He goes on and, and he comments on this, Michael Sacassus does, by saying, humanity has this kind of evergreen, recurring, cyclical, even impulse that presumes that techno-bureaucratic structures and processes can eliminate the necessity for virtue. There's no need for good judgment, responsible governance, self-sacrifice, or mutual care if there's an easy technological fix to ostensibly solve the problem. No need, in other words, to be good so long as the right technological solution can be found. There are two major problems with this impulse, right? And I, I want to be very clear. It's, it's, the problems are with the impulse, not technology itself. The technology is not the problem. The problem is outsourcing our need for virtue outsources our need for faith. If we are constantly dependent on tools and tips and tricks and life hacks such that we don't actually need to exercise any faith because that's where our focus is, then it actually teaches us over time and shapes our hearts in the direction of putting our hope not in God's promise of salvation, but in perpetual self-optimization. An example of this, uh, most of you know that last January, um, I was getting out of a hot tub and slipped on ice and the most bougie and embarrassing of injuries ever, dislocated my shoulder and broke a bone in, in the joint. Um, I had to go and get surgery a couple of weeks later and, have been, and I'm still doing uh, physical therapy for it. But recently, I realized I've, I've had been having this pain like on the inside of my elbow where the, kinda, where the bicep ends inside the elbow. And they had me get an MRI and get it checked out because that's kind of weird. I, my injury had to do with my shoulder. It had nothing to do with my elbow or my bicep of all things. Uh, I'm not going to recreate how I fell to prove that. Just take my word for it. Um, and what the, what the MRI results showed was that um, I have two tendons on my bicep that have partial tears on them. And that's very confusing because, like I said, this, like, how in the world did that happen? And the surgeon explained, oh, no, it's, it's obvious. I'm like, please explain it to me. Um, he said, that's because of the sling. That 
having my arm supported and immobilized for so long atrophied the tendon tissue such that as I started using it again, it, start, it will tear. And that's actually really normal. Whatever technology or whatever thing, whatever person we are using as a sling to immobilize our arms so that we don't have to use certain muscles, when we start to use that muscle again, it's going to tear. It's going to hurt. And we live in a world where you can't just wear a sling 24-7 or all the time. That's actually really dehumanizing. And that gets into the second problem with this impulse, which is means shape ends. Means matter. How we do something in changing it will shape and change the end for which we are doing those, that thing. And Michael Sacassis, um, this, this author of the article, uh, in the podcast that you should have gotten an email in the newsletter, Danny Rinkin was one of our guests, our first guest for a season on artificial intelligence. If you don't know what I'm talking about, check out the newsletter. It's awesome. And Danny is hilarious. It's great. On the, I'm just going to plug that there. But um, in this, as part of this podcast, I got to interview with my co-host, John uh, Michael Sacassis, and describing this very dynamic, he said this quote that I'm just, just going to be imprinted on my brain forever. He says, the human world built is not built for humans. The human-built world is not built for humans. You've probably heard me use the example that Alan Noble uses in his book, You Are Not Your Own, where he talks about how a lion in a zoo, because he's in, a, in an environment that, yes, looks natural and has fake rocks that mimic you know, the, the African safari and the grasslands, and, and yes, there are similar types of grasses in his enclosure, but something in the lion's innate nature can't... Ignore the fact that he can smell hot dogs 24-7 and hear the laughter and play of little children all around him. That is unnatural. And so the lion, to handle that stress, will pace back and forth and wear a rut in their enclosure constantly. There's an actual term for that. It's called zucosis. And we do the same. We're the only animals that do that, not just to other animals, but to ourselves as human beings. We, built, we build environments that are inherently dehumanizing. Now, why in the world am I going on this rabbit trail? Is this a rabbit trail? What does this have to do with Israel and 1 Samuel? It has to do with this. In the same way that technology is not the problem per se, monarchy is not the problem per se. The problem is substituting the hard work of trusting God with the easy convenience of having someone fix what might otherwise require you to depend on his mercy. What might otherwise require faith and trust. It's as if Israel were saying, you know, this whole like cycle of apostasy, oppression, and repentance and delivery, deliverance, like repenting is really hard. Maybe if we had a king to judge us, that we could stop that cycle in, in the book of Judges and, and we wouldn't have to repent anymore. That sounds great, right? Maybe then we wouldn't have to rely on God's grace and be repenting all the time. I mean, it sounds dumb when you say it out loud, right? But that's actually what we do, isn't it? We do this thing where when we screw up and we, we confess our, and, and repent, we tell God, like, I'm not going to do it again. And like, okay, it's a good motive. It's a good impulse, right? It's a good thing to, like, not want to not sin. But God's like, I know you are. 
That's why we call it grace. And that's why the definition of our relationship is grace and mercy and love. I know you're going to have to repent all the time. You will until Jesus comes back. The second problem that this relates back to Israel and and 1 Samuel is is that the means shape ends too, and that is actually the next point, right? That it's not just a king to judge us that Israel wants. It's one that is specifically like the nations. That language is so important because it's, this is Israel saying, we're tired of being Israel. We're tired of being who we are. We want to be Egypt. We want, we're, we're going to, you know, it's actually stable, you know, fast chariots and strong horses or strong legs, especially if you got my legs. If you were here last week, you heard about that. That's where the real power is. Not falling on our knees and begging God to deliver us from attack and oppression. Israel is willfully and knowingly asking for what they have already been living out, and they're telling the God who delivered them from help, the helplessness of Egyptian slavery, thanks but no thanks, we got it from here, and we, don't really just, we just don't need you anymore. It's hard not to think about this at this point in, in the sermon and, and, and the passage. When, when Israel is saying, we want to be like the nations, it's very easy to think about how after the last few years and maybe even the last couple of decades, there are a lot of Christians now, a lot of pastors even, who are understandably tired of being Israel, tired of being the church, tired of being God's people. And yeah, you know what? It's really exhausting in the midst of our anxiety to say, to like not jump to grasping control for ourselves, but throwing ourselves at God's mercy. That is very tiring and exhausting, especially if we're unpracticed at it. Being tired, being discouraged, being frustrated, those things are not sins. And we should have all kinds of compassion in the world for it. And we can't have our cake and eat it too. Substituting God's means for the world's means cannot lead to God's ends. Substituting God's means with the world's means cannot lead to God's ends. So worldly power, which is what what Israel is describing when he says, like the nations, we want a king like the nations, this kind of power, this kind of coercion and, and, and posture toward how we, how we are saved is fundamentally, can only manufacture a cheap imitation of God's blessing at best. It's trying to force something and achieve on our own strength and our own power what only God can give and bless and gift. And when we do it, it's always at another's expense. The means of coercion may have changed, right? We, we are, man, we, whether you're Christian or not, right now we live in a world that actively seeks out as a, like, like, like fighting culture wars and victory through silencing people who disagree with us, either with an online dog pile or legislation, like whatever it is, the, the means of coercion may have changed, but the inclination to use coercive power to outsource our risk is perennial. This is not new. By the way, in case you're wondering, because I do get 
questions periodically from people about like, what's the table stance on Christian nationalism? Or like, what do you think about Christian nationalism? And I just want to let you know right now, Christian nationalism isn't. Okay? There's no definition of Christian nationalism that is Christian. It's Christian-themed only. It's why in our presbytery, by the way, where candidates for ordination are examined, either being transferred, like Michael had, uh, you know, he had an exam question. He was asked what his stance are on things related to Christian nationalism because our denomination views Christian nationalism and theonomy as heterodox, as outside the bounds of Scripture. That's a good thing. This, among many reasons, is why. Why would we want to be like the nations? We're God's people. It's like being handed filet mignon and saying, I want hamburger helper, which as a kid I did, actually. But now that I'm old enough to know how dumb that is, why would we ever go back? In verses eight through, 10 through 18, God has Samuel tell Israel this. Like he says, why would you want to go back? Are you sure? Like you need to know what you're asking for. You may not want me to answer that prayer if you understood what that means. But as we will find out and learn as we talk about Saul uh, next week, that they, ins- they, they didn't listen. They insist anyway, and God grants the request, and he chooses Saul as king And it doesn't go so well, but essentially what God does is what C.S. Lewis said in The Great Divorce when he said that there are ultimately really only two kinds of people in the world, those who say to God, "Thy thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. So we'll talk about that next week, but I want to focus on some incredible breadcrumbs of hope because I don't know how else to say this except this is just so cool, guys, okay? Let me read verses 19 through 20 because this is, this is incredible. After Samuel goes to Israel and goes to the people and says, hey, God's got this caution and this warning for you. Or you, you, you really don't want this, actually. Israel double downs and doubles down and says again, give us a king like the nations who will judge us. But he, they add this. They add this line. It says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us, and, here it is, go out before us and fight our battles. Now, there's a sense that that they're actually saying the quiet part out loud here, right? The, the, The motive is becoming explicit. They're saying what they've already been acting like this whole time, and yet there's this is actually a... Foreshadowing is not the right word, it's the opposite. It's like shadowing back, whatever that word is. My brain is not working this morning. But um, a, a, a tragic irony just laden with hope, though. I, I mentioned earlier that at the, the Battle of Aphek, um, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. Okay? When it was stolen, uh, there is a verse that says, and remind, as if to remind the reader that this is what Israel believed at the time, that the Lord is enthroned on the cherubim. In other words, God's presence, His glory, is, is, was believed to be 
kind of floating in the space just above the top lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And so when it says that the Ark of the, when I said the Ark of the Covenant was taken as a spoil of war into, um, into the Philistine territory, it's as if God was taken as a spoil of war. And that's how the Philistines saw it, too, because what they did with the ark, when they took it back, they took it back to their capital city, they took it into the temple, and they sat it to the side of the idol or the statue of the god they worshipped named Dagon. And they put it in such a place as if to insinuate that Yahweh, Israel's God, is the servant of Dagon. Well, how do you think Yahweh liked that? Not a big fan. The next morning after they did this, they wake up to find that this, the statue of Dagon had fallen on its face in prostration. Thinking maybe this was a coincidence, they stood it back up, and then the next morning after that, it had happened again, and the head and hands of the statue were severed and placed at the doorway to the temple, which gateways and doorways, like Entering into a space, this is, it is a place of judgment. It is as if to communicate that Yahweh ritually sacrificed their idol, Dagon. They started to freak out, so they took the Ark of the Covenant and they started to ship it to other cities and villages in the region to get it away from the capital and away from their God in case, like, what is going on here? And every time they did, it says that the men of that city started growing tumors and dying. One after another, three times they, they shifted locations. Eventually, they go to their own diviners and, and seers and priests and ask, what do we do with this thing? Like, what's going on? And they say, here's what you got to do. You got to send that back. <laughs> you got to hit the return button on that one. But you cannot send it back empty. You need five gold tumors and five golden mice. I have no idea why tumors, like mice, I'm not sure what that looked like, honestly. Uh, but they, are t they represented the five fortified cities and the five villages, unfortified villages of the Philistine nation. And they said, put it in the ark and then send it back because we need a guilt offering because we have trespassed on Yahweh's presence. So they do this, but just again, because, you know, they're really, um, they're, they're modern people. You know, they don't want to be superstitious, and so they, they're like, you know, maybe it's still a coincidence, so we're going we're gonna to do one more test, and um, we're going to take two milk cows from one of our cities, leave their calves in that city, but take the, the moms, the milk cows, attach them to the cart, hook up the cart to them, and then let them go uh, with the ark on the cart as well. And if it's a coincidence that all of this has just happened, like maybe we're crazy, um, it's going to return back to where it's from, where they're from, uh, return to their calves, but... Um, and if this is not a coincidence, then it'll know where to take the ark. And it made a beeline straight for the closest village in Israel. You may be asking yourself, what in the world does that have to do with hope? That was some maybe impressively concise summary of seven chapters of Scripture, but still not terribly clear how, what we're supposed to draw from that. And before you text in your, Q, your, your question in the q and I'm, I'm going to explain that, but also test, text in a different question if you want. Um, my point is this. When they said we want a king like the nations to go before us and to fight our battles, Yahweh had been doing it the whole time. Yahweh had been doing it 
the whole time. If you know the book of Exodus, are you familiar with God rescuing Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery? You know that what he did is he entered into enemy territory to rescue his people, to deliver his people. He delivered plagues to soften the hold and the control over his people. Plagues and tumors, they're they, the, the, the two words in Hebrew sound very similar. It's an intentional allusion to that. And then, because they are so eager to, to let Israel go, they send Israel with all the gold and treasure and loot and plunder of the empire of Egypt. And it's happening again. As if to say, as if God is saying to his people that even in the discipline that I am allowing to happen to you, I am still delivering you from yourselves and from your enemies at the same time. Even as Israel is asking God to substitute, is is asking to substitute God with a king, God sends himself as a substitute out of the promised land into the exile that Israel actually deserves. I can't say it any better than Peter Lightheart who describing this, how incredible this illusion is and how, how, how much this is functioning as a typology and, and it's all part of what is being said here in, in 1 Samuel 8. He says, Yahweh went into exile taking on the curse of the covenant for his people and while in exile he fought for them and defeated the gods of Philistia. Israel suffered humiliating defeat at the hands of the Philistines, but Yahweh shared in their humiliation. And by taking the most intense weight of that humiliation upon himself, triumphed over the principalities and powers and rulers of the age. Sound familiar? Aphek and that battle was the site of defeat just like Golgotha was the site of defeat. It looked like it, but it was just a prelude to victory. That, that is the tension. That is the stress. That is the liminality, the in-between, the the confusion and the disorientation and the which end is up that Israel is going through as they are begging for a king and even for the wrong motives. God is telling them, okay, I am both going to meet meet you in your plea for a king and I am going to use this to judge you and to help you see that this is not the thing that you think it is going to be or do for you. And at the same time, I'm going to use that and give you a more beautiful king and who they think is David. And then we are going to learn by the end of the sermon series that actually he was terrible too and that we need someone who isn't a person, just a mere man. We actually need God himself to come into human history to save us from ourselves because if, we, if, if he doesn't, we are screwed. And God in his patience his love, not just for Israel, but because he wants to save more than just Israel. And guys, if there's just one takeaway in all of this, it's that if God is willing to do this with all of humanity and all of human history, do you think you're wanting to substitute him with something other that's dumb? Do you think that's going to phase him? And delivering you from that too? 
Do you think he's surprised or scared by whatever it is that you are depending on for hope and finding it unsatisfying? No, God is faithful to his people even when we sinfully seek to substitute him with worldly means or hope. He substituted himself to atone for that also. That's awesome. I'm not great at application as a preacher. It's okay to laugh. Okay, thanks. I'm not great at application as a preacher, and there just isn't any application for this except to sit in that, to just receive it. Don't do anything. Stop doing things, actually, and just just sit in God's love for you that, like, even as you're trying to actively run from him, he is going to pursue you. And that is the story of all of Scripture, how he pursues his people. All right, let's see what questions we got for today. So is your arm going to be okay? (laughs) Thank you for your concern. Uh, I hope so. Honestly, I, I appreciate prayer for it because... It's so slow, and every time I go for a checkup, they keep saying, well, it's going to be a six- to seven-month recovery, and then it's a 10- to 12-month recovery, and then the same appointment, the surgeon said, don't be surprised if October you come back and I say it's going to be a 12- to 14-month recovery. I'm just like, okay, sure. Um, So it's honestly very frustrating, and I still don't have, I'm like 80% mobility back. So I appreciate your prayers, but it's not hurting me like it used to, so thanks for asking. What should our response be when the institutions God set up to represent him to us fail us? Let me read that question again because I I got the sense now. What should our response be when the institutions God set up to represent him to us fail us? Two things. One, it is important to realize even in you know, whoever this is who asked the question, this is a very good question, and it would, be, it would be nonsensical to Scripture in some sense. And what I mean by that is this, that when we ask, what do we do when institutions fail us, that assumes that there are two parties here. And the way Scripture talks about the church is that us and institutions and the institution of the church is 100% overlap, and it's not just the institutions as if we're not part of that, okay? And so I just want to like reframe that because when we talk about the church, we often talk about the church as being someone, something or someone different than like a, a community, the, the community of Christians. And no matter where, how you splice that, the answer can and should and must always be we should repent and throw ourselves at God's mercy. We should work to change it. And we should depend on him and not worldly powers or answers or solutions in order to do it. I am happy to talk about that more, but that's a huge question of which I am very passionate about. And I want to get to, that's the last question. Never mind. We have no more questions. Um, Let me just say this then too. When we, uh, when I talk about the church and when we go through this 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 sermon series on David. David is an analogy and a typology of the church in so many ways, and he's an analogy and a typology of of Christ. Like, Jesus is the true and better David. 
And it's weird how much those emphases go in and out of focus as we go. And it's fascinating and it's beautiful and it's also really uncomfortable because David is really jacked up. And the David that slayed Goliath also used his position as representative to, of God to his people to sexually assault Bathsheba and to have her husband murdered in battle. This is the same David. In many ways, all the brokenness that we see and that is valid, we're the same church. And even if this church, the table, has not had experiences like the one being asked about in the, in the, um, in the question, we should still repent. The table, we, we, we must repent even if we individually did not do any of those things because we are still connected and we are covenantally tied and part of the same body and the same bride. That's okay, though, because God loves. We're free to do that, and it's good. Let's pray. Jesus, it is a mixture of discouraging and both validating and hopeful to learn that our inability to live as your people and faithfully to, to you is, is not new. It's something that has been going on for centuries and millennia in your people. And Lord, on the one hand, I, 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 it's kind of exhausting because, like, if we're not having any progress, how, what, like, what, what's the point? Like, how do we grow? What does that even look like? And it's at that moment that, that we are encouraged with the grace that, Lord, you tell us, you know what? Let me take care of that. Just look at me. Look at my heart for you. Look at my love for you. And that, God, is actually what we need to hear. We need to hear that it's not on our shoulders. It's that it's, you took it on your shoulders when you went to the cross and took our sin and died the death we should have died so that we could live the life that you should have lived. Lord, it is in the hope of your faithfulness to your people that we pray and thank you that we pray knowing you've already answered your promises. So we pray in your name. Amen.